Hey, what's up Seekers? Welcome back. In today's video, we're going to be talking about the other god of Judaism, Jewish pantheism. We're going to be discussing the seeds of pantheism, the earliest forms that begin to sprout into what may become later full-blown philosophical Jewish pantheism. We're going to begin with a discussion of pantheism versus panentheism, a discussion of pantheism or the seeds of pantheism in the Bible, Philo, followed by the rabbis. I'd like to tell you a story. The story about heretics and believers, philosophers and mystics, gods and worlds. The story of Jewish pantheism. Our story, in truth, begins before the birth of time, but for purposes of brevity, we'll begin where all good discussions of Jewish thought ought to begin, with the foundational book of the people, of the people of the book, the fountainhead of all subsequent Jewish thought and feeling, the Hebrew Bible, or as we like to call it, the Tanakh. This presentation of Jewish pantheism does not aim to be a comprehensive overview of the subject. That would take way too long. What I'd like to do instead is to present some of the highlights and high watermarks from the history of pantheological thought in Judaism, just enough to give you a flavor and taste of this other god of Judaism in its various manifestations and iterations. But a brief theological note before we begin. Before people start throwing tomatoes and complaining that I'm obfuscating theological categories by deeming pantheistic, what should be properly called panentheistic, a valid criticism that has already been voiced on some of our previous pantheism videos, let me say here on record that we've chosen to treat panentheism as a subset of pantheistic thought, as a pantheology, at least when speaking more generally and distinguishing between them as necessary and when appropriate. If you have no idea what I'm talking about here, allow me to explain. By now, if you've been following the series, I assume that you know what pantheism means. If you don't, check out the short 10-minute introduction explainer video. But what is panentheism, you ask? Good question. Panentheism is a term which was coined by the German philosopher Karl Krauss in 1828 to distinguish between the German idealists and Spinoza's thinking on the relationship between God and the world. And more generally conceptualized, it was an attempt to reconcile certain aspects of theism with those of pantheism, and the concept saw a lot of subsequent development under Alfred North Whitehead's process thought, particularly by his student Charles Hartshorn. The distinction between pantheism and panentheism, simply put, is that while pantheists assert that pantheos, all is God, literally, panentheism asserts that panentheos, all, is in God, namely that God is all that we know and more. The more saves space for God's transcendence, relationality, and personality, things which are ordinarily lost in pantheism. We're going to see some of the paradoxes this fault line between pan and panentheism gives rise to, making any simple classification of the Jewish thinkers to follow as simply either-or most difficult. In the following presentation, we'll encounter theologies that conceptualize creation as the self-expression of God, with the entire universe as nothing more than God's manifestations, while also maintaining an infinite and unbridgeable difference between God and God's creation will oscillate between apparently contradictory descriptions of God, God as entirely identical with God's creation on the one hand, and yet wholly distinct from them on the other. This ambivalence will serve to avoid either isolating God from the world, as traditional theism often does, 
or entirely identifying God with the world as some more brazen pantheisms do. The pan and panentheisms we will encounter here, as we shall see, will attempt to emphasize God's presence in the world without losing the distinct identity of either God or world. Some may want to call this dialectical pantheism, Wolstoff Kristeva and Keller like to call it apophatic entanglement, but truth be told, any attempt to label God, or even the God-world equation, is something of an anathema to the mystics themselves. As we shall clearly see shortly, in the case of Moses Cardovero, the mystic wants nothing more than to get beyond these labels, to encounter the absolute without any predicates, pronouns, or preambles separating between them. Which is why mystics historically have often restored to what's known as negative theology, the via negativa, apophasis, non-saying, derech ashlila, neti neti, only able to utter what God is not, not this, not that, ad infinitum, sharing in the hope of the poet that once all that is extraneous is stripped away, all that's left is the unsayable. The mystic often yearns to get beyond language in their approach of the ineffable, that which cannot be languaged, that which cannot even be called nothing, the ein od mevador, the none other than the none other. But unless we can somehow stare straight through the lens, straight it through your eyes and into your soul, and communicate on a plane deeper than where words can penetrate, we're going to have to resort to using language, which, as a technology, it seems, can either be used as a tool for division, or it can be harnessed for unity. And we here aim for the latter. With all that in mind, let us get back to the Book of Books, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. While the Tanakh itself contains no explicit tract on theology or systematic credo, Scattered throughout its pages are many statements concerning God that will go on to be of huge significance to subsequent Jewish thought, poetry, and prose that would have become the flagstones setting the parameters and contours of Jewish theological thinking for millennia. And many of these verses will be explicitly quoted back by later mystics as source texts to support and ground a range of theological positions throughout the years. Let us then begin our discussion of Jewish pantheism by familiarizing ourselves with some of these key verses to see if we can glean an image of the imageless, the embryonic shape of a certain alternative god of Judaism. In the prophetic book of Haggai, we find the reassurance of a god that is with, perhaps even within, the people. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, so I promise you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is still in your midst. Fear not. Haggai 2, 4-5. The author of the book of Daniel follows with a similar immanentist claim, preempting Nasser's deep ecology and Kavanagh's biotheology, that God is the, quote, life of the world, Daniel 12, 7, as does Nehemiah when he addresses God by saying, and you enliven all, va'ata mechayas kulam, Nehemiah 9, 6. In the Psalms of David, we encounter God as the ongoing imminent ground of our lives, you, O Lord, have been our dwelling place from every generation, Psalm 90, verse 1. And a God who was so present to the point of inescapability, where can I escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I descend to Sheol, you too are there. Psalm 139, 7-8. A message echoed in the fiery words of the prophet Isaiah, who hears the seraphim, the fiery angels, declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is filled with your glory. Isaiah 6, 3. And in the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, 
Am I only a god near at hand, says the Lord, and not a god far away? If a person enters a hiding place, do I not see, says the Lord? For I fill both heavens and earth, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 23-4. This was just a taste of some select verses among many, which went on to have immense impact on immanentist and pantheological Jewish thought of the ages. I'd like to demonstrate how biblical verses such as these were woven into a complex tapestry of thought, as Jewish thinkers armed with these passages encountered Greek, particularly Platonic and later Neoplatonic thought, how they mingled in and out of neighboring Christian and Muslim spheres through the study halls of Alexandria, Baghdad, Toledo, Vilna, Tzvat, and Brooklyn, New York, all to produce a distinctly and uniquely Jewish pantheology. I'd like to pick up the next thread of our story in Egyptian Alexandria. About 2,000 years ago, at the turn of the millennia, with one man who tried reconciling his biblical beliefs with his love for Greek philosophy, a man who set trends both in objective and methodology that would go on to dominate intellectual Abrahamic religious history for millennia to follow, a man who for centuries was intentionally forgotten by Jewish intellectual history, the Jewish philosopher who lived some 900 years before Sajagon, who most think of as Judaism's first philosopher. His name was Yedidya Hakayin, or Philo Judaeus, best known as Philo of Alexandria. During a difficult culture clash, when Hebrew and Greek thought first met, we find our man Philo spearheading an attempt to reconcile these two traditions. Just to give you a little historical context, Philo grew up in Hellenized Alexandria, the most prestigious of dozens of cities founded and named after Alexander the Great, a student of the philosopher Aristotle, 300 years before Philo's birth. Alexandria, by the time Philo was born there, had become an immensely important center of Hellenistic civilization, and was to remain a Hellenistic capital of culture and thought for almost a thousand years until the Muslim conquest of Egypt in the year 641. Among other things, Alexandria was home to the largest library in the ancient world, the Great Library of Alexandria which, in addition to collecting and housing the great works of ancient mathematics, astronomy, physics, medicine, natural science, and philosophy, it was also home to a flock of international scholars, poets, philosophers, and researchers who, according to the historian Strabo, were provided with free accommodation and food on top of a handsome tax-exempt salary to stay and study and research, effectively turning Alexandria into the intellectual cultural center of ancient Mediterranean. Alexandria, however, was not only a center of Hellenism, but was also home to the largest urbanized Jewish community in the ancient world, whose presence formed a significant percentage of the city's population from its very inception, a community that was explicitly involved in combined Jewish-Greek pursuits, as evident from perhaps the most momentous work of the period, the production of the Septuagint, the second translation of the Hebrew Bible, the first, at least partial, translation made into Aramaic, now known as the Targum or the Targumim in plural, during the Babylonian exile, followed by the Septuagint in which the Tanakh was translated into Greek, a project which ran the course of a few hundred years beginning in Alexandria. This Greek text, the Septuagint, would go on to become the source text of almost all later translations of the Bible into Latin, Syriac, and many other languages. Philo grew up in this rich cultural milieu and experienced the deep confluence of these two civilizations, this one city split between its Egyptian, Greek, and Jewish quarters, and this one individual split between his Hebrew and Greek halves, Yedidya and Philo, 
Philo Judaeus and Philo of Alexandria, a man who was deeply influenced and perhaps torn between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel on the one side of his soul, and Thales, and Anaximander, and Exagoras, Xophanes, Heraclides, and Parmenides, Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle on the other. Philo, because of the enduring influence of the Greek philosopher Plato particularly upon his thinking, has been retrospectively placed among a group of thinkers known today as the Middle Platonists, situated as they are between Plato and Plotinus, bridging between Platonism and Neoplatonism. Philo's impact and legacy in the history of religious thought has been felt much more among Christian philosophers than his own people, thanks in part to the immense significance the concept that he developed had upon the early church fathers and Christian philosophers, including, but not limited to, the concept of the Logos, which finds its way into no less than the prologue of the fourth gospel, in the beginning was the word, the Logos, and his innovations in the allegorical reading of the Bible, which went on to be of tremendous utility to thinkers like Origen, Ambrose and Augustine, and many others, Christian and Muslim. But here I'd like to bring Philo back to the fold a little and consider his thinking in the context of Jewish theology. Philo's God at first glance is utterly transcendent, beyond time and space, quote, ineffable, inconceivable, and incomprehensible. Yet, upon further examination, we find hints of pantheistic thought that soften this absolute transcendence, inaccessibility, and otherness. In a line of argumentation that we shall see reappear throughout the history of Jewish theology, all the way up to Shnerazaman of Liadi, Philo argues that without the continual creative action of God, the universe could not maintain itself, and would simply cease to exist. Thus Philo concludes that God, through God's active creativity, must be all-pervasive throughout God's creation. And in a thought that preempts the Neoplatonists, Philo saw God's ideas, or God's word, and wisdom, the Logos as he calls it, as the preserving force in the universe, mediating between the world and God, the world in fact being an emulation of the divine Logos as the Logos, the first emanation, is an emulation of God. This paradox between God's absolute transcendence, yet providential providence in the world, which Roberto Ratis calls the antimony of transcendence and providence, is one way of formulating the challenge that will go on to bewitch so much of theological discussion navigating the space between God and the world that was to follow for centuries and millennia of Jewish thought to come. For the next destination in our story, I'd like to jump forward a few hundred years right into the heart of rabbinic literature. Redacted sometime between the year 300 and 500 CE, towards the end of the Talmudic period, is the classic rabbinic text attributed to the 3rd century Hoshea of the Amoraic period, entitled Bereshit Rabbah, the Grand Genesis, which takes the genre of a medrash, a homiletical commentary on the book of Genesis. Early rabbinic sources such as these which we're about to explore grapple and wrestle with biblical fragments and water the seeds of an emerging theology, Never a formal catechism or comprehensive systematic declaration of creed, but a living, breathing, hyper-intertextual, complex flower, a seventy-petaled rose which blossoms for centuries. With that in mind, let us read Bereshit Rabbah 68.9. We would not know whether God is the place of the world, or whether the world is God's place. But from the verse, Hine makom iti, behold, there is a space with me, or a place within me, Exodus 33.21, it follows that God is the place of the world, 
but the world is not God's place. So this is a pretty straightforward excerpt of rabbinic literature and thinking. One may have had the question, which contains which, God, the world, or the world God, to which the author answers, thanks to the verse in Exodus 33, behold, there is a space with me, implies that God must be more spacious than the world, so it is God rather than the world that contains the other. As plain as simple as that sounds, this passage is actually quite perplexing and enigmatic. A curious question which you might be asking yourself is, to phrase it in the classic Talmudic jargon, what was the hava amina? What was the original assumption of the author? That the world might be the place of God? How is that a genuine possibility for a rabbinic mind to entertain? And secondly, why does the author make it sound like if it were not for this one verse in Exodus, we'd have no idea who contained whom? Certainly, there are hundreds of verses that point quite plainly to God's transcendence above and beyond the space of the world. How can the author say, if but for this one verse, we would not know? What is it that this verse is uniquely imparting that no other could have? But putting aside this very Talmudic line of questioning for the moment, the conclusion of this midrash points us to a pretty clear premise in rabbinic theology, unsystematic as it is, that God is the place of the world, namely that the universe resides within God and not the reverse. And it is from passages such as these that God in Judaism receives the nickname Hamakom, literally the place or the space, namely the spacious or more technically the omnipresent. And it is in this Midrash and the accompanying name of God, Hamakom, that we begin to hear the first rabbinic indications of a properly panentheistic theology emerge, and perhaps even an accompanying repudiation of pantheism, where the one point, if any, that is made here is that the world is in God and not the other way around. These texts, positions, and pronouncements will be jostled, tested, subverted, celebrated, and lamented, all part of the day job of Jewish thinkers centuries to come. The next text in our literary journey through rabbinic literature is one from the Babylonian Talmud itself, Brachot 10a, which inverts a typical pantheistic metaphor of the world as the body of God, giving us instead God as the soul of the world. Commenting on Psalm 103 and 104, in which the phrase Barchinafshi es Hashem, bless the Lord, O my soul, is repeated five times, the Talmud, in the hopes of clearing up some confusing syntax of whom is praising whom in these five utterances, asks, five times did King David say, bless the Lord, my soul. Corresponding to whom did David say these five utterances of, bless the Lord, my soul, asks the Talmud. To which it answers, King David said them about none other than the Holy One, blessed be God, and in reference to the soul. The Talmud takes this to mean that just as the psalmist, King David, relates the soul to God five times, so are there five parallels between the soul's relationship to the body and God's relationship to the world. The Talmud goes on to elucidate these five parallels. Just as God fills the entire world, so does the soul fill the entire body. Just as God sees but cannot be seen, so does the soul see but cannot be seen. Just as God sustains the entire world, so does the soul sustain the entire body. Just as God is pure, so is the soul pure. And finally, just as God dwells in a chamber within a chamber, namely in the holies of holies in the temple, so does the soul dwell in a chamber within a chamber, namely within the hidden inner recesses of the human. And the Talmud concludes to really clear up the original question of whom is praising whom, God the soul or the soul God, for once and for all, Yavo mi shyesh bachamishadvarm halalo, vi shabich li mi shyesh bachamishadvarm halalo. 
Therefore, let the one who has these five attributes come and praise the one who also possesses these five attributes. Besides for this uncharacteristically clear theological assertion that God fills the entire world, cannot be seen, sustains the entire world, is pure and dwells in the innermost chamber, perhaps items number one and three, God's filling and sustaining the world, being most pertinent to our current discussion of Jewish pantheism, the ambiguity of the conclusion, which most current annotated renditions of the Talmud smooth over with the bracketed inserts of first soul and then God, therefore let the one who has these five attributes, the soul, come and praise the one who also possesses these five attributes, God, it is by no means clear in the conclusion of the original text of the Talmud who ought to be praising whom, God the soul or the soul God, as evident from the editorial need for the clarifying brackets. But perhaps, maybe, just maybe, the obfuscation here is the precise point of the passage. By drawing this fivefold analogy, the reader is led towards the co-identity of the two subjects, and this analogy opens the door towards their full identification that will follow in later Jewish theology, as we shall see. And unsaid but implied is the rereading and reflecting of that precise ambiguity back into the original words of King David, Bless the Lord, my soul. While there are many important Jewish thinkers between the Talmudic period, which comes to a close in about the 6th century, and our next major destination in the story in the 12th and 13th century, who have been labeled as pantheologists, such as the 11th century biblical commentator Abraham Ibn Ezra, many modern scholars, all the way from Spinoza to Krachmal, have seen as such, thanks to his commentary on verses like Genesis 1.26, Exodus 33.21, and 34.6, respectively, where Ibn Ezra writes, God is the one who is all, and God is the all in the all and with the all, and lastly, God includes everything and is called one. And there's a lot more that we can quote from what's been described as Ibn Ezra's neoplatonic pantheistic theory of emanation, but let us suffice with that, and I'll put sources down in the description if you'd like to find out more about Ibn Ezra's pantheism. But I'd like to end this first segment on rabbinic thinkers before moving to the Kabbalists, by focusing on the great rabbinic halachist and philosopher, the man about whom Abraham Joshua Heschel once said, if one did not know better, they could think that his name was that of an entire medieval academy or school, not just an individual, Moses Maimonides. While it may be difficult to claim that Maimonides' philosophy was pantheistic, some have seen some evidence for a claim in that direction in Maimonides' identification of God as the active intellect with the object of the intellection, the world, and the process of intellection, allow me to explain. Maimonides famously and succinctly opens his great halachic work, Mishnah Torah, in Sefer Mada Yesodea Torah, with two chapters on the foundations of the Torah where he tightly lays out his theology, cosmology, and metaphysics. In chapter 2, paragraph 9, Maimonides begins to describe how all of existence, quote, from the first form to the mosquito in the bowels of the earth, comes into being from the true existence of God, and as such, God knows and recognizes all things as they are within God's greatness, beauty, and truth. Then, in the next paragraph, paragraph 10, Maimonides writes, The Holy One, blessed be God, recognizes God's truth and knows it as it is, but does not know it with a knowledge which is separate from God in the way that we know things, for us and our knowledge are not one thing, but in the case of the blessed Creator, God, God's knowledge, and God's life are one from all sides and corners, and in every way which they could be unified. For, if God's life or knowledge were external to God, there would be many gods, God, God's life, and God's knowledge. But, 
The matter is not so. God is one from all sides and corners in all ways of unity. And here comes Maimonides' famous line. Thus it turns out we could say, God is the knower, the known, and the knowing itself, all as one. Maimonides goes on to admit, this matter is beyond the capacity of our mouths to relate, our ears to hear, and the human heart to comprehend in its entirety. Namely, this notion is ineffable, unfathomable, and humanly incomprehensible. And for this reason, writes Maimonides, that God does not recognize and know that which God created in terms of the creations as we know them, but rather God knows them in terms of God's self. Therefore, since God knows God's self, God knows all things, for all things depend on God for their existence. Maimonides follows this self-admittedly ineffable and incomprehensible paragraph with the even more mysterious pronouncement that the aforementioned matters are but a drop in the sea compared to what would be needed to explain and elucidate them, and labels this idea and the chapters surrounding it in a move that would be debated for centuries, appalling and confusing many, as Maaseh Merkava, quote, the explanation of all the fundamental principles of these two chapters is referred to as Maaseh Merkava. Maaseh Merkava, for those who don't know, literally means the workings or account of the divine chariot, a reference to the prophet Ezekiel's vision, and subsequently went on to become the name of the esoteric teachings of an early school of Jewish mysticism, which attempted to explicate and emulate Ezekiel's first-hand experience of the divine cosmic chariot. Maimonides here is applying an extremely loaded label to the ideas he's laid out, and he knows it, because in the very next paragraph, he applies the classic warnings associated with this mystical corpus of knowledge and practices, namely that these matters can only be divulged to no more than one deserving and qualified student at a time, and only after an extended period of supervision and examination, determining their fitness to receive these teachings. And even to such a person, the whole matter is not explained outright, but rather they're provided just an outline of the concepts and the fundamental points, and it is upon them to contemplate these points until they arrive, by the power of their own knowledge and understanding, to the ultimate meaning and the depths of these concepts. For these matters, writes my money, these are Dvarm Amukim Adma Oid, extremely profound matters, which not every person and mind has the capacity to bear them calling them subjects which are the secrets of the world. If all of this is sounding quite confusing, and you're not exactly sure what Maimonides is being so secretive about, and what it might have to do with pantheologies or mysticism, I might not be able to spell out the whole picture for you, but I can perhaps point you in a way of understanding that may begin your own process of unraveling this mystery. Maimonides opens his halachic magnum opus with the heavy task of instructing how one ought to conceptualize God and in doing so, attempts to dispel underdeveloped, immature, and anthropomorphic conceptions of the divine. This, as you can imagine, is a responsibility which Maimonides takes very seriously, and in some senses is a task which he commits himself to for his entire life's work, both in his work directed to the masses, such as his Mishnah Torah and his other commentaries and pastoral letters, and in his philosophical work directed to the elites of the elites, even just to one true student. This task is central to the quote we just read from chapter 2, as evident from the preceding and opening chapter of this work, which begins by affirming The foundation of all foundations and the pillar of wisdom is to know that there is a primary being which brought all existence into being. 
and all beings in heavens and earth and all in between them only exist from the truth of this being. And in the rest of the chapter following this monumental opening, Maimonides endeavors to prove the necessity of the existence of just one such true being and to dispel what he sees as incorrect anthropomorphic conceptions and personifications of the divine based on illegitimate literalistic readings of depictions of God in the Bible. Maimonides concludes his two-chapter opening volley of theology before moving on to his discussions of cosmology in chapter 3 with the strange words we read earlier in paragraph 10, which he recommends remain hidden like honey and milk that should be kept under the tongue quoting Song of Songs 4.11. With this in mind, let us return to Maimonides' final thought, which we read in paragraph 10, the final thought he divulges before reminding us and himself that he ought not say more, namely, the unity of the thinker, thinking, and the thought, the knower, the knowing, and the known. According to the scholar God Ferdenthal, if there is a philosophical mysticism to be found in Maimonides, it is to be located in, quote, the overcoming of the split between subject and object, namely the dissolution of the subject-object dichotomy. And this dissolution, Ferdinthal argues, is evident in the Mora, in the Guide to the Perplexed, 168, where Maimonides teaches that in all successful cognition, there is a moment where the knower, the subject, and the known, the object, and the mind, the ground of knowing, become one. And this in and of itself has no particular mystical import. It's just the natural, everyday process of cognition, according to Maimonides, according to Freudenthal. However, when for the human, the object, so to speak, of cognition is God, then the moment that the knower, the subject, and the known, the object, and the mind become one, in that moment, the bifurcation separating the human, subject, and the divine, object, is overcome, which, which it must if we don't want to conceptualize the divine as an object which Maimonides does not want to. And in that moment, to quote Ferdinand, there is a full epistemic union, the cultivation of true philosophical mysticism, which Maimonides, in his infamous passage in the Guide 351, in line with his idiosyncratic and iconoclastic reading of the biblical and rabbinic tradition, calls the misat nishikin, the kiss of death or the death of kisses, where the spirit of the individual and the spirit of the divine touch, kiss, and intermingle into one breath, where the subject and object become lost in one another until they are no more separate, the face-slash-spirit of God hovering over every surface. And it is precisely this capacity to unite in thought with the object of our creation and to create with our thoughts and dreams that is endowed to the human, the Tselem Elohim, the face of God, when God in Genesis pronounces, Adam Let us make mankind in our image like our likeness. And God said, Behold, the human has become like one of us. Genesis 3.22 But let us leave it at that for now. Next week, we'll be exploring the tradition whose name often becomes synonymous with all of Jewish mysticism, pantheism and panentheism in Kabbalah. Thank you so much for joining us and for watching. For a brief recap, we begun by distinguishing between pantheism and panentheism with a bit of a disclaimer so that we don't get into too much trouble. We then outlined some of the key verses in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, that point towards a pantheistic immanentist theology. We then discussed the character, the first Jewish philosopher, Philo of Alexandria, in his attempt to try to reconcile his own Platonism and such biblical verses. 
and perhaps the god that he produces, although still quite transcendent, imminent as well because of the active creativity, which means that god must be present in creation. We then spoke about some key rabbinic texts which point towards pantheological notions, one of them discussing god as the place of the world, and the other one discussing the obfuscation of the soul and god, and god is the soul of the world. And finally, we looked at Ibn Ezra, and more extensively at Maimonides, in his notion of the union, the epistemic union, of God as the active intellect in the world, as the object of intellection, and how the human partakes in that project, uniting in their thought, God and world, themselves and God. I hope that wasn't too much for one class. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you to our Patreons for supporting this project so we can continue to take the time to read, research, and write, and share classes like these, exploring mystical thought, unitive thinking in the world's great religious traditions, including my own Judaism, a topic which is a bit hard to do because sometimes things that are really close to home are harder to tackle. But here it is. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions, please do leave them down in the comments below. I try as hard as I can to answer all questions that are posed. Thank you so much for watching. Keep seeking.